Today is the 8th of July. Exoteric astrology is the background, and you need to know exoteric astrology in order to understand esoteric astrology, as you probably gather. So what I want to do today is to give you some uh, basis or for some of you revise exoteric astrology, and then we can go on to the esoteric. Uh, before you start, yeah. can you just um, make a clear distinction or what defines the difference between esoteric and exoteric in relationship to astrology? Well, it's a vast world of difference. Exoteric is uh, concerned with the form, with the personality, with natal charts. Uh, it, it also, and that's horary astrology, as called. They also go into sort of predictions of the future. Sometimes they try to go into predictions of uh, history and things like that. They can try to look at making money, sort of when you're going to get pregnant, when you're going to all of that sort of stuff, you know, get married, you know, make yourself wealthy. So it's the astrology of the personality that's delineated by what we call the great illusion, samsara. And there's four forms built into the astral plane over the century or the millennia of human evolution, and those four forms condition the rebirth of many individuals from the personality point of view. And that particular wheel of the zodiac is called the houses of, of the signs is what determines or gives the validity to exoteric astrology. Esoteric astrology is the astrology of the energies they impact uh, from the, the constellations. Now, the signs of the zodiac are exoteric in the sense that they are the fourth forms created by humanity and stay impinged upon the Akashic records on the astral plane and then, or the astral mental, and then they are contacted as a thought construct that determine aspects of the, the birth of individuals from the personality point of view. But the signs of the constellations and the energies that come from them as they impact via your souls and condition life and the streams of life and then samsara is what esoteric astrology is about. In exoteric astrology, it is the 12 signs of the zodiac and the seven traditional planetary rulers. In esoteric astrology, we have an additional five planetary rulers. The seven exoteric planetary rulers are Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. And with esoteric astrology, we also add the moon and the sun, both of them violating esoteric planets, the earth itself, and Vulcan. So it makes an ex and Pluto. So we add an extra five planets to make whole. The orientation, of course, in the chart is different. So exoteric astrology is the astrology that you find given out in the ancient texts and Chaldeans, the Egyptians in China, etc. That's the form of astrology that most people know and follow or understand. And esoteric astrology is the astrology that is the astrology of enlightenment, of discipleship. We work with exoteric astrology when it comes to the personality. In other words, if the person is not a disciple and is busy involved in mundane activities, such as you know, primarily selfish motivation, you know, sex, making money, family, work, business, all those sorts of things, and that whole material world is their concern and the way that they think, then the chart should be done exoterically for that individual. If a person is aspiring the cycle, then the chart has to be an overlay between the exoteric and the esoteric planetary rulers. And the planetary rulers are interpreted differently also in the esoteric and the exoteric. Then if the chart relates to an initiate and an awakened disciple, then there's a new set of a new set of interpretation, which is what we call hierarchical. So there's exoteric chart, 
a esoteric chart and a hierarchical chart. So DK, when he gives us signs in his esoteric astrology, the, the rules to any particular sign of the zodiac, he is, and he gives these three, uh, three planetary rulers, where in exoteric astrology there's only one. So we looking at orthodox average human beings, disciples who are still living in their personality vehicle and then totally awakened initiates with those three, three different rulers. And you can see there's a difference. Obviously, a disciple is oriented towards their soul, towards hierarchy, towards obtaining subjective impressions and energies from their heart, from the higher planes of perception, whereas the average human being that is governed by orthodox astrology is conditioned by the astral plane, the mental plane, and their physical plane life. There you have the difference. So if I was looking at an average human being, there's no point doing an esoteric chart. If I'm looking at your charts, I would have to combine the esoteric by large, mostly that's what I look at, and also looking at some of the exoteric influence. The uh, exoteric, therefore, is the great illusion, and the esoteric is that which is breaking out of, out of that bonds of the illusion of samsara, and hierarchical is the freedom from all of that. There is, if you've read Govinda, he uses the phrase there, the turning about in the seat of consciousness, which he said is about the only miracle that the Buddha actually recognized, is when one changes from being an average, human, selfish, focused individual to aspiring towards enlightenment and taking that as the leap motive of their existence. Likewise, with astrology, in the exoteric, technically the, the zodiac moves from right to the left, and then in the esoteric, at that point of the turnabout, the seat of consciousness, when the esoteric comes into play, the orientation of, of the zodiac changes. Uh, I said I, I had it wrong, it was some from left to right, and from the esoteric, therefore it's from right to left. Of course, you know my problems with mirror images in diagram, where I make things the opposite to the way people normally look at things, diagrams. So I make the east in what's our left hand when everyone else makes it in the right hand. So whereas I'm really looking at the orientation from the paper looking up. Mm -hmm. There are these orientations. The other thing, of course, we're looking with esoteric astrology when we're looking at the planets as, as the living entities. Therefore, you're looking at Venus, Saturn, Uranus as the schemes, as the planetary schemes, and not as a thought form construed over millennia and have taken their place as universal archetypes. I was looking at the, the Jungian sort of concept of that, with the collective unconsciousness, if you want, which is the Jungian term. This universal archetype, which is what exoteric astrology has been is based on. It's a collective unconsciousness created over millennia of people worshipping the heavens and watching the exoteric movement of the signs of the zodiac retrogressing. So it has its place, it has its own force vector, and it influences the personality shell, the lunar form. Uh, in yoga philosophy and in our uh, concept, when you ever look at a tanka, you'll see that they often have a little sun and a moon in at the top of the tanka, and one relates to the Ida Nadi, which equates with the form, the consciousness-bearing principle, and which is the moon, and then the other relates to the Pingala Nadi, which is the heart, the awakening of the enlightened consciousness, the, the Pingala Nadi. And so you can look at the exoteric and the esoteric astrology in relationship to these two types of nadis. When we are looking, when we need to an an analyze, for instance, the destiny of the nations as DK's little book on, on that subject, and then you'll find that he gives planetary rulers and 
the signs of the zodiac to all of the nation that he talks about. This is esoteric astrology. Now, the exoteric astrologers also try to do the same thing, but they fall flat because they don't have the proper understanding of uh, the rays, etc. With esoteric astrology, of course, when you're looking at the planets, you're looking at the ray lines, the ray energies that they uh, convey. So if your knowledge of the rays and you're looking at, say, Venus and it's the fifth ray, then immediately with an understanding of the rays, you get an idea of what Venus conveys. Now, both exoteric and esoteric astrology have ancient mythology as the background or the backbone, but we interpret the mythology in an esoteric sense as they do it in an exoteric sense. And all of you know what I mean by esoteric. Whenever, of course, you're looking at comms, which is what this whole is about, interpreting comms, or the, um, the standards of Dian, etc., the old commentaries of, of Bailey's books, then you're always looking or working with esoteric astrology, those planetary rulers and the way that the signs of the zodiac are interpreted by esotericists. Before we get to the signs of the zodiac, you have to learn about the creative hierarchies, which is another big subject. Almost nobody, well, they don't know about that subject in exoteric astrology, of course, but in esoteric astrology, they're quite important. Not so much in terms of your poems, but certainly in terms of the understanding of, say, the standards of the arm, standards of meditation. There's a form of astrology which I am revealing to the planet with, of course, DK's help, because he's really given the basis to it, which is this hierarchical form or cosmic form of astrology, where it's the astrology of the cosmos. When you're looking at the standards of the arm, whether it's Blavatsky's, and these ones here of DKs, what's uh, in uh, Blavatsky's um, secret doctrine, there's lacunae, which are gaps. Uh, there's three, uh, three gaps I could count at least, where there's parts of the standards of meditation that are missing. And some of the missing portions are here given in DK's cosmic fire. And other aspects of the missing portions I've already revealed in the first, you know, the second, third, fourth chapters of my secret doctrine, where I go into the early history of the solar system. This knowledge of the early history of, say, the solar system, of the history of the root races, all, all things that do with evolution, the evolution of, well, what we call history, but the esoteric history, the proper history of humanity, all of that is astrological. But... These, um, the standards of Dian, uh, a symbolic text. So what DK is revealing is one of the books stored in the great libraries of Shambhala. At the back of Cosmic Fire, there's another symbolic text interpreted um, called the Ray Pass. And that's another book from the, if you want, the libraries of Shambhala, which decay is kindly encoded or revealed to humanity in this way. My purpose is to try to reveal more of the records of Shambhala. And you can see that there's a difference between Shambhala, if you want, and hierarchical. Hierarchical records are more the evolution of the disciples of, of hierarchy itself. And in my book, The constitution of Shambhala, I go into some of that ancient history of hierarchy when we are talking about Osiris and Isis and Hercules, etc. These myths and the search of the Golden Fleece, Archonaton, all of this is hierarchical records. Shambhalic records is the record of cosmos, obviously. It's the record of how stars come into being, of the evolution of planetary spheres, the subjective evolution, the evolution of creation, the evolution of dissolution of Prela, Manvantala, and of course the constitution of all the constellations, uh, what rays they are, uh, the, the planets within that. So this particular study of what I call cosmology, or cosmos, so it's the study of cosmos, uh, the Dharmakaya, which is another way of explaining it. This is this 
proper esoteric astrology or the hierarchical aspect of it. And this form of astrology is what I'm endeavoring to reveal to humanity in my books. Of course, it's, it takes time. Therefore, this particular seven volumes of the treatise on mind is the beginning of that revelation. And my later books will go more deeper into this form of hierarchical astrology. The astrology of Shambhala, you know, hierarchical astrology, if you want, and then the, the astrology of Shambhala, the, the lay of the land in cosmos, uh, the way things actually are, what governs the stars, what, what ray lines they are, how they interrelate. And this particular history, uh, another Shambhali book that was written many millennia ago, of course, is ancient mythology, the mythology of the gods, the titans, Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite and all of the, these myths. This is another um, Shambhali book that's been revealed to us by the ancient seers, by the great ones that incarnated that, you know, like Pythagoras. Their purpose was to write the stories of the stars and the way they interrelate and, and fuse it with the ancient history of humanity in mythology. And that is a, a symbolic text, which again, one's trying to reveal, and some of you may help in revealing the inner meaning of, of these symbolic texts written millennia ago for the benefit of humanity. The reason, of course, it was written millennia ago, it was, if you want, the exoteric portion of the secret doctrine that were revealed or given to the temples of initiation. So the exoteric data, the coded exoteric data, and it was coded astrologically and numerologically in their, their language at the time for worship by the masses, who of course didn't understand it, but the initiates in the temples, they were initiated into the mysteries of those myths. And um, that again, those myths, when interpreted properly, as I said, is another symbolic text and gives you the more keys, the proper keys to the understanding of esoteric astrology or hierarchical astrology or esoteric. We'll use the word esoteric and understand it has these two portions to it as well. Therefore, one of the ancient books, as I said, Shambhalic books, is the symbolism of great beings that ended up like Orion, the story of Orion and Orion's belt and all of that. Those are the stars, the myths of the stars is esoteric astrology. And it's the inner knowledge of those myths which initiates learn in the temple of initiation, such as what you are part of, is what esoteric astrology is about. Again, so you can see it's an enormously vast subject. It's the language, if you want, of the lords of Shambhala that you're beginning to learn to be initiated into. Therefore, it's the true wisdom of what is wailed by the Sanskrit term Dhammakaya. Where do you place the Akashic Annals? In the, in the hierarchical record or Shambhalic record? No, no, the Akashic records, as I mentioned before, the astral plane image of Earth events. And it was created by desire minds of humanity, those that believed in the myths. So exoteric astrology has said has its uh, foundation there. It's an astral mental sheath that surrounds the common heritage of humanity, created by humanity. There is a higher version of that on the ethnic plane, which I prefer not to use the term akashic. So akasha is the fire of space. So it is the correct term, but it's been, well, you know, it, it, it has an exoteric and an esoteric interpretation. Even though, of course, most esoterists only know what I call the exoteric. The esoteric Akashic records is, of course, what I call Dharmakaya. This is what we're trying to learn. Uh, I, I knew there were, there were two levels, but I'm glad you, you specified them. Yes, one 
is the level of the awakened, enlightened vision, and the other is the level of uh, the great illusion of the mind space of samsara that all beings that are not enlightened live in and are conditioned by. Mm-hmm. And that's where mm-hmm. those are the forces that give the, the tourism to exoteric astrology to the native mm-hmm. charts. The reason why people born under certain signs do have those qualities because of the fort construct of this particular version of the Kasha curriculum. So you can see the difference. The difference is one, those such as you are breaking free from the glamour of the world, the mayor, this substance of illusion, and entering into the domain of liberated light, into the domain of enlightened mind. And others, the great majority, live within that, I'll use the term again, astral sphere, the astral plane. That's again a difference between you as a group here and those that are not with you. You are actually um, learning to break free from that astral conditioning of the way hierarchy may have been taught in Atlantis and of truly becoming Aryan, which is what working for the third initiation is all about, the Aryan initiation, whereas the second initiation is an Atlantean initiation. So the fourth forms of Atlantis compared to living in the fiery domain of mind, we can see there's a great difference. This particular study of Eastern astrology, as you can see, is limitless. It's enormously vast, and it's something which the Lords of Shambhala are engrossed with. Everything they do is astrologically conditioned, and by inference, therefore, it's also numerologically conditioned. Twelve signs of the zodiac, twelve planetary rulers. You're working with the fifth planetary ruler. There's the number five. So we can use the term Venus, or we could say five. Uh, we could use the term Saturn, or we could say ten. You can see that Saturn is also seven. You can see, therefore, that the numbers and the planets are aligned. Isn't you know, also I, third ray? Saturn is third ray. Yeah, Saturn is the third ray. That's the ray line. But I'm also looking at the house that it's uh, in. But thanks for saying that. Uh, the number three and Saturn are, are directly aligned. Uh, it has a relationship to number seven. So all of you are familiar with exoteric astrology. Do all of you know the signs of the zodiac? And what about the orthodox planetary rulers? that they're signs of the zodiac and that they're real signs of the zodiac. You may know your birth um, sign, for instance, Taurus is Venus, Mars is Aries. The orthodox astrology actually is quite simple. It's all based on pattern. So so if you draw the circle and you draw it as neatly as you can, and then you divide it into half and then quarter, and then you make each quarter into you know, um, cut them into certs so that eventually you make the 12 houses. On your left, facing the paper, is um, the signs of the zodiac are based into these four quadrants, the four main quadrants. And the fixed cross that you've drawn in the centre is the, the crux of it. It's really the cardinal cross. It's the four cardinal signs. So on the left... I always make it to the right my diagram, so that's on your left. Um, you start off with Aries. Now, what you have to understand that this particular zodiac that you're drawing is based on the northern hemisphere where all this astrology derives. And you've got the movement of the seasons as you go through the signs. So if um, the 12, I think the 12 sequence that you've made, oh, it's 30 degrees of a 360-degree circle, right? Mm-hmm. And each particular one of these 30-degree segments is a month. So there's 12 months to the year. And okay. you can see, therefore, that there's 12 signs, and each, each one of these 12 months is what's called a house in astrology. Mm-hmm. So the planets fall naturally into the house, and the houses themselves are given the 
positive signs. I won't go into interpreting charts. All of you know the symbols, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, mm -hmm. Cancer, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and the symbols for the planet. Mm -hmm. Because it's the Northern Hemisphere, we start with March the 21st, because that is the solstice. And it's when the sun rises out of winter and it starts to enter into spring. And so the days get warmer and it rises exactly at 6 a.m. in the morning. And then the opposite is the equinox when the sun sets at 6 p.m. and we start to go in the northern hemisphere and autumn and to go into winter. So you've got these four quadrants. One is spring, which is the first quadrant. The second quadrant is the summer years. The third quadrant is the autumn. And then the fourth quadrant is the winter months. You've got the horizon line, which starts with Aries, which is March the 21st. And then the opposite sign is Libra. Yeah, so you go Aries to Libra. And so that's the horizon line. And, and technically, the top part is the, the sunny days or the summer months and the, the heavenly realms. Uh, and then the bottom portion relates to winter, cold, freezing, you know, the hell states. So you've got the, the, the roughly the delineation of the wheel of the zodiac into uh, heavenly or the summer, you know, halcyon sort of days. And then when everyone starts to shiver and freeze and, and not like life that much, the winter days. This particular line is a feminine line. The, the feminine is that horizontal line and the masculine is the vertical line. So, so first of all, you've got the four seasons. And so you get an idea of going up from Aries to Cancer, which is the fourth sign, which is the beginning of summer. I think that's May the 21st. And the opposite in Capricorn, December the 21st, is winter. And so you get the reason why, for instance, Saturn, is, is the, which is the natural ruler of Capricorn, called the greater unfortunate, because it's the middle of winter. We, Isaturus, of course, related to karma. That's when karma hits you. Um, Saturn is the ruler of karma. You get an idea of the season and what you might call the, the times of joy and the times of sorrow in relationship to the signs. And Capricorn, therefore, is midwinter and mostly unfortunate. In esoteric astrology, we have it reversed. Capricorn is in the northern portion of the wheel and Cancer is in the southern portion. And we start from Aries and we go through to Taurus, going down below, not up. This is the reversal of the wheel. And whenever I write the Zodiac, I nearly always go Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer. Gemini. And then we go to Capricorn on the top because that's the way the wheel always turns for me in my thinking. But the opposite is valid as well. One, you know, is the, the, the orthodox way and the other one is the esoteric. Right? As I said, you need to know orthodox astrology if you're going to understand esoteric. The Cancer is, is the beginning of summer, remember? And the summer is the top, whereas the bottom is winter, is hell, it's the underworld, it's the, the dying process. Um, technically, in the Northern Hemisphere, as we all know, that's lived here, when winter starts, the trees losing their leaves, everything dies, life force leaves, and the divas are doing other things, and everything's preparing for frost. So therefore, this is winter, and so this is Capricorn. So it's the dying process that relates to the journey in the underworld. When the sun arises on March the 21st, that's when Demeter in Greek mythology is released from Hades and she can start to rule nature's greenery and things start producing flowers and leaves and all of that. So the, the seasons are quite marked in the northern hemisphere. You pour sods in the southern hemisphere, well, you live in deciduous uh, evergreen forests. But there is the seasons are very, very marked in. So these marking of the seasons and what you might call Fortunate signs, which is the summer signs, and unfortunate signs, which are the winter signs, you know, it's quite pronounced. And of course, you don't have much money. The winter 
years over the winter time is generally time of serious hardship, now for the poor and the depressed and downtrodden. Now, the signs of the zodiac are from Aries or on the outside of it, um, and then the next sign is Taurus and then Gemini and then Cancer and then Leo, which is the height of yeah. summer, uh, and then Virgo, then Libra, then Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. So those are the last, the last signs. And so from Pisces, you start the new cycle, the new season with Aries. Okay. The other thing that, that makes um, this form of astrology relatively simple is the next thing that you can assign is the elements. All of you know that we don't worry about the fifth element, um, ether, which is just the center or that governs the entire wheel, but you've got, you know, fire, earth, air, and water. Now, all of you know the meaning of fire. It's the mental plane. Earthy is the physical plane and, and mundane living. Air is buddhi. It's the enlightenment consciousness. And water is the emotions. These elements, when you're thinking of the signs of the zodiac, it's the same esoterically as for orthodox. Um, the same elements rule the same houses. and But we look at it esoterically and they look at us the elements exoterically. The first of the houses, Aries, is fire. And the fire comes in, of course, to start the to warm up the days. <coughs> and Taurus, the element is earth. Yeah. And it's the the sign of, of the house, the hearth building the garden again. And Gemini is the sign air. Right? And that's the temple, you know, the temple worship. The next sign is water, which is cancer. So you've got fire, earth, air, water. And then the hole starts again. So the next sign is fire, which is Leo. Then you get earth, which is Virgo. Then air, which is Libra. And water, which is Scorpio. And then it starts again. Um, Sagittarius, which is fire. Capricorn, which is earth, Aquarius, which is air, and Pisces, which is water. So you can see the patterns. Once you know the first pattern, then they just repeat around the zodiac. There are three fire signs, three earth signs, three air signs, and three water signs. One of the water signs is dominant, and the other, you know, the other two are subsidiary. For instance, Cancer, obviously, is the prime water sign. depends on how you want to look at the water signs. At this particular stage, just to look at the the main elements ruling the sign, they are secant and more complicated exoteric and esoteric astrology. They'll have the decant. In other words, they divide each of the signs into thirds again. So each decant is a decade, right? At Ten degrees of the zodiac. That can be a little bit more complicated. And I don't bother with, with decans, but you can if you ever want to. But uh, there's, there's ascending node and the descending node of the moon. Yeah, they have a dragon sort of sign, which relates to the summer and then the other one to the winter. You know, those phases of the moon can be woven in this too, which gives the you know the way that the waters influence or the personality. And whenever you're looking at the moon, you're looking at the personality. Once you assign these particular elements and you understand the meaning of the elements then you know automatically that Aries for instance is a fire sign you probably knew that if you're born in Aries or if you're Taurian you knew that you're an earth sign but now that you can know the, the other signs and you know that for instance if you're Arian you have a sympathetic affinity with the two other fire signs which is Sagittarius and Leo so there's a, a commonality of certain type of energy about you. If you're watery, which is um, emotional, uh, it feeds your waters and mainly makes you more emotional, desire-based and so forth. And then that's Cancer, uh, Pisces, and Scorpio. And they are watery in a different way. Cancer is watery, watery. It's, it's really the emotion. Pisces is the psychic. It's psychicism. So Pisceans are generally more mediumistic. Cancerians are generally, you know, just emotional. And Scorpions, well, they have the sting. They can be nasty and treacherous and all of those things. So, and of course, the, the glyph of the sign is quite important. Therefore, you've got in Scorpio the sting in the little arrow, it's the sexual aspect. And so sexuality rules Scorpio, and if you want, 
the nastiness that a lot of relationships have, uh, mediumism and bondage rules, Pisces, and emotionality, or, or you know, pure emotionality one, rules, cancer. So you get an idea, and we can go to all the triplicity of these elements, and you can therefore look at the differences between them, and the difference in the earth signs between Capricorn and Taurus and Virgo. Capricorn is the most rocky material hard, they're often cruel, and that's what we call the mountain, right? It's the, the goat climbing the mountain. Earth, Taurus, is earthy and saturated with desire, you know, desire for material comforts, basically. It's the well, material comforts hydro, if you understand the meaning of that. And Virgo is the feminine, the materialistic and the, the feminine, the body beautiful, the everything to do with uh, attachments to material things that glitter, that shine. And I'm looking at exoteric astrology, <laughs> but it's more materialistic. The Virgoing are much more materialistic in their aspects, right? They, they generally want a lot of material things. Um, the Capricornians are more cruel, hard, mental. So the mind, the Torian, is the desire base. It wants comforts, it wants money and things like that. So you can see the, the differences between the signs, but they're all material in their incentives. And then you get to the air sign. Well, the air signs generally more freedom, freedom of consciousness, but of course it's more... So we get the three air signs, which is Gemini, Aquarius, and Libra. And again, they have their differences, where Aquarius is the most mutable, of course, with the wavy bands, and you get, therefore, shallowness. The, the aquarium puts all of their goods in the window. They like to show off with what they have, but they generally lack real substance. It's all in front of you to see plainly. So they can be shy, uh, showy um, clothes, fancy car, but they may be in hock up to their neck. Appearances. Yes. So that's like a fancy, it's, it's the fleetiness of, of the desire mind for, uh, to show. With Gemini, it's the temple. The temple can be a person's home, for instance, the way they do the home. But it's the flighty nature of the mind, of the emotional mind. They can be quite intuitive. You know, so you've got this Gemini, it's the messenger of the gods. So it, it, it receives lots of intuitive flashes and they often sort of rush this way and that because of their flights of fancy with their intuitive insights. Uh, it's not also double personality, two, two faces? It can be that. It's the two, um, the twins, you know, the yeah. male and female. It, it can be that, or they can learn to hold hands and, and serve each other, but often they're warring and fighting each other. So, so you can see that later on you have to go into the, the symbols, the glyphs. And then Libra is uh, is the judge and so uh, here they they have much more balanced reason out attitudes to, to life's problems they're much more contemplative and then that leaves the fire signs and aries the first of the fire signs is quick impulsive impatient irrational you know martial leo is the the egotist the, the sun-worshipping lion basking in the sun and the pride and glory of themselves with their mental prowess. And then you've got Sagittarius, which is similar to Aries, but they're a little bit more wise. They set their, their mark with you know, their, their arrows firing at a target, and they can be quite one-pointed in their thinking nature, so they can be very, very well one-pointed, determined fixed on an idea, and so you get an idea that the, the fire signs are the signs of the mind, the airy signs are the signs of intuition, so to speak, the watery signs are the signs of emotional involvement, and then the earthy signs are the signs of practical down to earth plodding on the surface. So there's your four elements. But uh, with the ones that you were saying are dominant, are they the ones on the cardinal cross? Normally they would be. Yes, normally that would be. That's another thing to go into the cardinal, the fixed, and the middle the crosses. But we'll go now into the assignment 
of the planets. And again, there is a sort of pattern. It's not that obvious, but there's only seven signs, I think there's seven, to take into account with orthodox astrology. You just write down Mars for Aries, um, Venus for Taurus, and Mercury for Gemini, the Moon for Cancer, the Sun for Leo, and the Sun and Leo is very obvious uh, because it's the height of summer. And the Moon for Mars, uh, for Cancer, the Moon is lunar, it relates to the form, and Cancer is a watery sign, so it's relatively easy to, to remember those two. Aries for Mars is because Aries is quick and impulsive. It's the first sign and the, the god of war, which is Mars, brings into play the, the coming of the, the fiery season or the summer seasons. Venus for, for Taurus, because Taurus is the earthy sign and Venus has all the pleasures of, of, of a home environment. Mercury is for Gemini because Mercury is the messenger of the gods, you know, had wings on their, uh, on his feet and the Confucius staff, so he flies from place to place. It's the, the flighty intuition, the intellectual intuition, if you like, the intellect, the flighty intellect. So that's Gemini. We've done Cancer and Leo, and then, and then we, we get to Leo, then we get to Virgo, which is Mercury. So there's a relationship, as you can see, between Virgo and Gemini, but in Gemini's case, the Mercury, Mercurian mind is fluid and much more mutable. In Virgo's case, it's more bound to the earth because Virgo is an earthly sign. It gives that very, very keen intellectual qualities of the Virgo and the discriminative intellectual qualities. The, the vanity of women is one of the, the ways of looking at it. Virgo, of course, is the penultimate feminine sign, and therefore you have to look at, you know, as I said, the, the vanity, the, well, intellectual curiosity is another sign that I like for this particular Virgo, and it's a very, very keen intellectual, um, earthy, down-to-earth sign. Now, Venus for, for Libra produces the, the rational judgments of the, the judge. Then Scorpio, well, everyone should know that Mars rules Scorpio, the whole field of desire of sexuality, of the sting of the scorpion. With the next signs, uh, when you're going to the solar system, of course, there's the inner planets, uh, Mercury and Venus, and then the Earth. And then there's the outer planets, which are Mars, and then we get Jupiter, and Saturn and Uranus. And in the next few signs, we incorporate the outer planets. So we go from Venus to Mars, Mars to Jupiter, Jupiter, Saturn, and Saturn to Uranus. So you can see the progress, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus. Okay? So if you go from Leo, and you've got, it's ruled by the sun, and if you take that also as, well, the sun, and then the closest to the sun is Mercury, which is Virgo. The next closest is Venus. The next closest after that, we skip, is Mars. And then the mm -hmm. next closest is Jupiter, it's which Jupiter. is Sagittarius. And then after that, we get Saturn, which is Capricorn. Capricorn. And then you get Uranus, which is Aquarius. Aquarius and Pisces as well. Pisces is Jupiter again. Yes. Oh, what happened to Pluto? Oh, okay, get into Pluto. Yeah. Pluto is, you have to understand that Uranus, and Neptune, and Pluto were only discovered in the modern era. Uranus, yeah, so, for instance, yeah. um, the symbol of Uranus has got a H on. It's not even an esoteric symbol. And that's from uh, the name of Sir William Herschel, who discovered it back in 
modern astrologers, modern exoteric astrologers actually put in Uranus. They have concepts of Neptune and, of course, Pluto, but they're still arguing about what exactly these things do. Of course, they go to mythology, they have to go to mythology. Pluto, Hades, the god of death, and so they relate to that. So they, they have a problem still, and so they some have written pieces on on these. Not to mention the, the, people are finding planets now all the time. Well, yeah, yeah, they, they can do that. But let's just stick with what, yeah, um, what science has discovered, and we'll stop with Pluto. Huh? In esoteric astrology, we also add Vulcan, mm-hmm. which is the uh, planet that's etheric. It was once there between the Sun and Mercury, when the sun wasn't quite so hot, but it's now etherized. Yeah? Ah, so is that say is it the hierarchical rule of Aries Vulcan? I don't I'd have to look in the chart, but um, we'll go to esoteric astrology later. But according to DK, it's the esoteric ruler of Taurus oh. and also the hierarchical rule of Taurus. Remember in our esoteric astrology we have three planetary rulers. And so esoteric astrology is a little bit more complicated. Okay, so now you understand why Pluto and Neptune are not on this chart, and Uranus does come into it, and Jupiter gives a little bit of wisdom to Sagittarius, and that's the reason why well, Sagittarius, as I said, can be quite fixed and determined, but they generally know their goals, and they can fire their arrows to a distant mark because of the wisdom of Jupiter. Jupiter is called the, the, the greater beneficent. Capricorn, which is midwinter, of course, there's some ruled by Saturn. Uh, it's the great misfortune of Rocky. Maleficent, they call it. Uh, the great Maleficent, of course, because it's the middle of winter. People are not happy often. Well, I have Christmas, but yeah, you know, understand it's cold. But Saturn is the lord of karma, so you always look at you know, of the rulership of karma with Capricorn. And then Uranus with Aquarius. Uranus is the seventh ray, and it brings in the occult, and therefore the Aquarian disposition, they generally have a tendency towards the occult, the occult in a more orthodox way of looking in terms of magic. Uh, they often you know, thought of as trippers. Yes, it can be sort of, can be the, the occult in terms of being involved like in the drugs. Yeah, it's what you call the occult of the new age, the new ages, and therefore the age of Aquarius, which is what we're entering into now, is the age of the seventh ray occultism, the lower psychic. Loving, dabbling in the lower psychic, you know, sort of crystal magic and practical magic in terms of, you know, all the astral plane phenomena people like. This sort of thing is Aquarius and Uranus. And then Jupiter and Pisces, again, Pisces is the ending of the sign, it's the ending of the, the season or the ending of the zodiacal year, therefore it's a sign of death. And what you have to look at with Jupiter is wisdom. It produces uh, Jupiter in the Greek mythology is Zeus or Zeus or Deus or however you want to say it, pronounce it. Um, the, the, the king of the gods. And so you've got the king of the gods really the ending of the, the cycle, the ending of the seasons, the ending of the zodiac, the ending of the day, the ending of the year or whatever your activity is in Pisces. And then the start of a new one with the impulsive, headstrong ram coming out of all of that to butt on the new cycle. So when with all of these keys, you can see that it makes it easier now with these patterns to understand or to remember the orthodox astrology. You don't have to have an enormous quantity of memory here. You just have to understand the patterns. Okay? So certainly, as you can see, from Leo to Jupiter, there's suddenly, you know, Leo to Aquarius, all of those signs which follow the, the way that the planets come from the sun to Uranus. And then the other signs you just have to memorize. Uh, and then the seasons and the elements are quite obvious. And then summer solstice, winter solstice, the equinox when you're in between, you know, the equinox. So you can see that this particular cardinal cross is what this is. It's the Capricorn, Cancer, and Aries, Libra. This is the cardinal cross. These are the cardinal signs. And esoterically also, they're the most important signs. And we'll go now into this 12 signs 
and three crosses. Each of the crosses has four signs attached to it. This one here is the cardinal cross because it's the, the cross of the major changes of the season between equinox and winter and um, summer and winter solstice and so forth. Right? So the major changes is this cardinal cross. And esoterically, it's the cross of the, the first ray aspect of the will of father aspect. And the sixth cross of the heavens is the cross of consciousness of the Christ principle. The next cross after the cardinal, so you move from Aries to Taurus. And once you look into Taurus, then there's the head, if you want, of the fixed cross. And the opposite of Taurus is Scorpio. And in between these two, uh, Aquarius and Leo. So these are the four signs of the fixed cross. And the fixed cross is the, the sun aspect, right? It's the consciousness-bearing principle. You can, in your consciousness, make them vertical if you want and say that's the cross of which the, the Christ was crucified upon. And these signs are, are signs of compassion, of more loving disposition. You get Leo, Taurus, Aquarius and Scorpio, where, where, if you want, the desire principle is worked out. And in esoteric astrology, these crosses are very important. And even in my books, I go into these crosses quite a bit. They're the three main governing aspects of the, the zodiac. And Taurus, from my point of view, is always the, the leader here because it's the eye of the bull. The eye of the bull, the wisdom principle, rules it all. It's the, the horns of Taurus. Is the horn, is the moon, the lunar principle over the, the earth. Yes. Um, so the, the psychic is rising out of the, the earth. But you can also think of it in terms of the Earth being a Earth sphere and the, the psychic relating to cosmos and knowledge of cosmos riding out of a Taurus is the most, many, many ways, the most interesting of the signs. Oh, you're just saying that because you're Taurus. <laughs> well, the Buddha was Taurus also for good reason. It's, it's a prime feminine sign. It's the sign of wisdom, of the development of wisdom because of the, the eye of the bull. And you have to understand that Taurus contains the Pleiades and the Hyades cluster as well. So it's, it's actually the sign that turns the zodiac. In many cases, like DK and his esoteric astrology, his explanation of the signs of the zodiac, he starts with Taurus because it really is the, the bull, the eye that, that, that pushes the zodiac on. Aries just simply instigated, but the bull is the, the driving force. It's a stronger animal anyway than the ram. Yes, I'm Taurus, and I'm Taurus for a reason. So you can see the opposite of the bull is Scorpio, so the general sort of desire for comfortable lifestyle in Taurus, by the time you get Scorpio, it's full involvement in, in sexual and martial activity, uh, fanaticism. You know, the, the fanatics and, and Aquarius and Leo are the two hands. And one is uh, right hand, which is the Aquarius, which is generally giving. It's the, the sign of, of giving, of generosity. And then the Leo is the, the selfish, self-centered, egotistical hand, uh, more fiery and basking in their, their own glory. They like to have their, their pride, their lionesses around them their sycophants that that draw them for their natural leaders as a concept. Okay, so you get the fixed cross aspect. And then you finally get to the mutable cross, which is the cross of constant changing activity. The the remaining four signs. Gemini, Polop, Sagittarius, um, Pisces and Virgo. So these are the signs of, of constant mutable activity. Uh, people that are always busy doing things, they're always with their hands, with their minds, everything is active. Which was at the top? I'm just looking at the, the three signs of the, the spring equinox, which is Aries, Taurus and Gemini. And they naturally on the top. So once you've got those three, you know that it starts with the um, cardinal cross and goes to the fixed cross and goes to the mutable cross, then all the other hands of those crosses come into view and you can see the relationships or interrelationships, so they're all related. You can also see that, for instance, Taurus is an earth sign, Scorpio is a water sign, Aries is an earth sign, Leo is a fire sign. So each of these crosses have the four signs, all four elements. 
are integrated by means of one cross. That gives you a good background understanding of orthodox astrology. And once you understand a little bit about the signs of the zodiac and then the qualities of the planets and the natural houses where the elements that rule them come into it, it's relatively easy to, to work these things out. If you know that Mars is full of desire and sexuality and you're scorpionic and it, especially if it falls in, in that particular house that you start with Aries, house number one, Taurus, house number two, and you go down and if Mars is actually found in that particular house, that that person's going to be full of sexual drive and passion and will to accomplish things. And, you know, so you can work at, you're looking at the personality life and you know what people want in their personality life, sex, good relationships, lots of money, um, pleasant lifestyle. What else do people mostly want that makes them happy? Children, yeah, maybe children. Whether they're sick or we're going to be healthy. So astrologers, orthodox astrologers, are always looking at these sort of qualities, yes? When they're going to die, going to sort of live happily or they're going to have um, <laughs> sadness in their lives. It's going to be a marriage breakup where you're looking at Saturn, the great uh, misfortune, you know, where Saturn is, where Saturn's is aspected to Mars. And so you've got the aspects and the aspects are just got to do with the degrees between the planetary rulers. If it's a, say, 30 or 60 degree, then the aspects are good, they're fortunate. Right. In other words, the energy that they facilitate each other's expression. If it's at a 90 degrees, then it's unfortunate. The aspects are badly aspect. And when I do esoteric astrology, I take it a little bit different than that. I, I'm looking at blocks of energy or the facilitation of energy because I look in terms of things. And so it's not necessarily a, a square is not necessarily a bad aspect. It just means that energy is not flowing um, between those two signs when they should be. When I'm looking at a trine, for instance, or a sextile, which are these 60 and 70 degree ones, I'm looking at a facilitation of energy. When you're looking at a, um, get all the terms, a semi-quintile and whatever, you're looking at 72 degree angle, for instance, which is the pentagram, that relates to the flow of consciousness, the way the mind influences those five signs. The other things too, looking at when you're looking at interpreting charts is cusp. The cusp is how close are signs together. And astrologers, when they're very close, for instance, say within three degrees of each other, then they will influence each other strongly. If they're within six degrees, some astrologers say, well, the influence is weak after that, they don't bother. So if you're looking, making a square, for instance, if they're three, from three to six degrees, you can say, well, there's a square there. If it's after that, then the square won't form. And they're looking at such things as grand trine and so forth, which have very strong influences in the personality chart. So the, uh, the cusp, how close the, the planetary rulers are, um, allows you to draw the trines or the sextiles or the, the squares and so forth in the chart. And so when you're looking at somebody's chart, you'll see that the, these um, things are drawn very in different colours so you can distinguish them easy enough. And so those are the angles. Others, sometimes they're looking at minute little differences like 135 degree difference angles, which on the whole I don't bother. But if you know that's what you do in your life, uh, you're an astrologer and you're looking at charts all the time, obviously you're going to specialise and you're looking at the moon's nodes and things like that specialise in the, the fine detail, whereas on the whole, you just need to know the, the general detail of the chart. Now, the other thing, of course, is the chart is written, as you, all of you know, when you're born, that, that moment of birth in relationship to the terrestrial place of birth. The terrestrial place of birth is important because it, it delineates what sign of the zodiac, well, what's in the heavens at that time, at that place, because the earth is a moving, moving top, spinning around, and so any particular place is aligned to certain stars and constellations when you're born, and those energies influence you. I said this is the exoteric and also esoteric, whereas your exact time of birth is what brings in the influences from your last life or lives. So the influences from your last lives are um, cemented into place when you're born in relationship to the planetary and the zodiacal influences and in relationship 
you know, where you were born. That is a basis for the computation of your charts. The, the date when you actually die determines when you're going to be born normally. Some real astrologers, esoteric astrologers will work that out. With, uh, if you're an esoteric astrologer, as DK points out in his book, Esoteric Astrology, the astrologer will have a number of charts superimposed upon each other. They're in different colors. So one's exoteric, one's esoteric, one's hierarchical. <laughs> um, the other one might be the chart of the mind. So they're looking at the way the mind is evolving, the way the emotions are evolving, the way the physical body. So you can see that the, the exoteric astrologer I mean, the esoteric astrology has much more looking at the evolution of consciousness and looking at the way consciousness evolves over a series of lives. And within the chart, there are certain keys as to your past life. For instance, the moon, the moon sign is always how it's aspected as your past. The sun is your present. The Saturn is your karma. Uh, and, of course, your ascendant is your future. Where what is aspected to your center tells you where your future is, what your purpose for this life is, in other words, and it might indicate purpose for your next life, because um, there can be a series. The moon will always give you where you've come from in your past lives. The sun is your present personality conditions, what you're trying to overcome or develop. Um, Saturn, obviously, offers your karma. Jupiter is the wisdom principle. Neptune gives you the placing of whether you're working to a master the waters, Uranus is always the planet of occultism of the seventh ray purpose. Mars can be highly energetic and give you testing, especially if it's in um, Scorpio. Esoterically, we're looking at the evolution of consciousness of the cycle. The first thing you've got to do if you're going to be an esoteric astrologer and you're one of their charts is you must determine the spiritual age of the person. Are they a first-degree initiative, second, third, fourth? Uh, you must interpret the chart according to the degree of initiation. If you don't do that, you're going to fall on your face. I've done this occasionally by thinking that the one I'm looking at is older spiritually than they really are. Yeah. And you're interpreting the chart according to intrinsic initiative level. And therefore, before you can do a chart, esoterically, you actually have to meditate upon that person. You ask them a lot of questions, you know, presuming they're a stranger. Can't the chart indicate to you the age of an initiate? The chart doesn't, per se. You first of all got to determine the age of the initiate, then you can do the chart. Once you've, once you've learned the age of the initiate, you can then interpret the chart according to that spiritual age. If I'm going to How do you find out what the age of it? It's a meditation, you get an impression from hierarchy, where you use your wisdom mind. Yes. That's right. As I said, you have to meditate upon the person. You have to ask them questions. Unless you are an enlightened being and you can see them esoterically, you can see their souls. But with the esoteric chart, you're trying to look at the way that the soul is manifesting its destiny over a number of lives, you know, minimum of three lives. And generally, you've got to know the person quite well. In your case, and people that have ever come to me, I don't do charts much as you know. You know, I can pretty well know that you're third degree or fourth degree initiates. You know, that to me, it's just a matter of what side of the fourth are you? Uh, have you passed your fourth? Are you working towards your fourth? And then you're looking at the chart in relationship to the tendencies, the testings, the qualities that the person has or to develop in order to help that testing ahead, the passing of that initiation, or whether it's going to be in this life or the next life. The chart will reveal when the initiation is to happen, this life, next life, or whether it happened in the last life. My sun is, is, is Gemini, and my moon is Gemini. When you're looking at Gemini, what are you looking Mercury. at? You're looking at the temple, the temple worship, the bringing together of the, the warring couples that are hold hands, and your moon means that the, the past, the, the past is what you actually have to fix up in order to gain mm -hmm. your future. But it's done through temple worship. Through, through. That's just a very quick interpretation. Then you have to look at all the aspects and where things are placed and how they so It only takes two to three hours for me to look at somebody's chart. And so unless a person was really an important disciple. My ascendant is Virgo. This, the place of the sun when you, I was born was in Virgo. 
Virgo is the feminine, as you know, it's the sign of the Diva Kingdom. It means that you're going to learn about the Divas, that's the future, and everything to do with the feminine. Diva. But it depends, uh, all the other things to do with, with, it depends very much on how it's aspected. And so, you know, it's um, the moon, it was uh, aspected also in, in yeah. Gemini. So what else is in Virgo and with its attention uh, conjunction? But basically, to, for you, it's just obvious. The feminine, the great mother, the divas. And so the exoterically, of course, it's the mind. But esoterically, it's the sign of wisdom with Mercury there, the messenger of the God, that makes you much more intuitive, intuitively bringing in energies to, to work with things. So if we're looking at esoteric interpretation, see, whereas the exoteric will never think of things. If I didn't know you, I would still have to look in terms of the the feminine mysteries because you're looking at they're saying again the spiritual aid. If it's somebody new, for instance, I did Anastasia when I first met her, and there's a lot of things you can't tell them because they don't have the language, they don't have the terminology, they don't have you know the concept of the rays, and you have to look at all the rays. And so if you're looking at you know sort of Mercury and and Virgo, just that for instance, it was there, and suddenly you're bringing the fourth ray, which is Mercury. Okay, that's uh, that's plenty.